0: Minnie Dean, Minnie Dean, she's gonna get ya, and take you away on the afternoon train. Oh, you'd better be good or Minnie Dean's gonna get ya, and you'll never, ever be heard of again. Hello and welcome once more to the History Obscura Reading Room. I am your immortal host, Mandy Gardner, and I'm back with another creepy tale of terror from the past. Once upon a time, a Scottish woman by the name of Minnie McCullough boarded a ship. It was shortly after the death of her mother that Minnie embarked upon a journey to Invercargill, New Zealand some 18,000 kilometers away. It was among the longest journey a person could, and can, take, before beginning to circle back to their point of origin. This was the longest singular journey of human immigration ever recorded. Invercargill was a brand new colonial town at the southern tip of mainland New Zealand when Minnie stepped off the boat. It had, in fact, been purchased by Englishman Walter Mantle from the local Maori people in 1853 and was mostly populated by Scottish immigrants looking for a chance to start life afresh. Especially after gold was discovered in the region in the 1860s, people from Britain, especially Scotland, began to flood to Invercargill. Between 1839 and the 1890s, several hundred sailing ships brought tens of thousands of immigrants from Europe to New Zealand. In the 1840s, the ships were generally around 500 to 600 tons, carrying between 100 and 250 passengers. By the 1880s, they could weigh over 2,000 tons and carry up to 500 passengers. The ships bringing Europeans to New Zealand were owned by several companies, but when the New Zealand Shipping Company was founded in Christchurch in 1872, the government welcomed it as a competition to British firms whom they perceived as tending to place cost-saving above the well-being of passengers. In the late 18th century, a route to transport convicts from Europe to Australia had been developed. This took ships southwest down the North Atlantic, often as far west as Brazil, then southeast to Cape Town. The Easting to Australia from Cape Town was roughly along the 39th parallel. By the 1840s, ships bound for New Zealand were following a similar route across the Atlantic, though seldom reaching Brazil, then swinging wide round the Cape of Good Hope into the Roaring Forties, westerly winds that moved ships along at a great speed. Vessels were sailed as far south as their captains dared in order to benefit from stronger winds, but there was a risk of violent storms and icebergs. In 1850, when the Charlotte Jane went as far south as 52 degrees 36 minutes, The Littleton Times criticized its captain for inflicting miseries on passengers in the interests of making a fast passage. The journey to New Zealand began, for most migrants, with an overland trip to the English ports of London or Plymouth, or to Greenock docks near Glasgow. If ships were not ready to leave, passengers had to wait for up to a fortnight, often without enough money for decent board and lodging. In the 1870s, government barracks at Plymouth and Blackwall accommodated people waiting to board. At London, the loaded ships were towed by steam tug to Gravesend, where cabin passengers boarded. They escaped the usual crowding, pushing and confusion on the dockside. On the day of sailing, carpenters could still be putting up partitions and bunks, temporary fittings in space used for cargo on the return voyage. Boredom on the long voyage was relieved by such novel sights as dolphins, flying fish, albatrosses, and whales. For cabin passengers, at least, books, chess, and cards helped pass the time. Quots, a game using plated rings of rope, was played on deck. Entertainments ranged from simple debates to the performance of plays. Concerts were popular and newspapers were produced on several ships. The monotony was also relieved by passing ships. People waved handkerchiefs, and letters were sometimes passed to homebound vessels. The ships would heave to, and people would row small boats back and forth. In the Southern Ocean, encounters with other ships were rare. Close confinement often led to quarreling and cabin fever. In one account of the Lord Auckland's 1842 voyage, a regular row involving sailors and emigrants, all fighting together and shouting, cursing, swearing, and screaming in a general mass erupted when the sweetheart of a hysterical woman attacked the surgeon. In another report, the great national dislike between Scandinavians and Germans on board the Friedeberg in 1873 led to endless heady squabbles. Shipwreck, or fire, was a threat on every voyage. Possibly the worst disaster occurred when the Cospatrick caught fire and sank in 1874, causing the loss of 470 people. Some dramatic voyages ended happily. On the 1st of January, 1874, the Surat ran ashore in the Catlins coast The ship was a write-off, but all 268 passengers were rescued and taken to Dunedin by steamer. In another incident in 1878, the Piaco began to burn in the Atlantic. Its passengers were transferred to a passing ship and taken to Pernambuco in Brazil, where the fire was extinguished and the ship repaired. Anticipation mounted as voyages neared their end and the immigrants would be on deck before daybreak to watch for the first sign of their new home. It was after three to four months at sea that such ships would reach their destination. Vessels that arrived carrying disease were quarantined. At quarantine stations, passengers and bedding were disinfected. In a few sad cases, deaths in quarantine cut short the new lives for which immigrants had hoped. Minnie McCulloch was one of the tens of thousands who survived the voyage and quarantine, though whether she was alone or with remaining family members, records do not show. After her arrival, Minnie lived in various towns and cities in New Zealand, working as a nursemaid and a governess. She eventually settled in Winton, a small town in Southland, where she became a successful businesswoman running a dressmaking business. Dressmaking wasn't all she did, however. Minnie McCulloch, who eventually married one or two times, became known to the people of her community as Minnie Dean, wife of pig farmer Charles Dean. For extra money, following tough times after the gold rush and an unsuccessful stint at growing crops, Minnie became a baby farmer. You see, Minnie Dean was known in Winton as a kind-hearted woman who took in unwanted and illegitimate babies. This was not an uncommon trade at that place and time, as single women with children found themselves shunned by settler society and unable to find shelter, work, or even husbands to provide those things. Therefore, reputable ladies like Mrs. Dean, with a reputation for being able to find good homes for unwanted children, became quite popular with poor women whose men friends had absconded. Baby farmers, like Minnie Dean, would take in infants and young children for a fee, usually with the intention of finding them permanent homes or adopting them themselves. In exchange, they were paid a maintenance fee by the mother or another family member each week. Multiple charges, and Mrs. Dean is said to have had an average of nine children in her care at all times, could really start to add up in fees. One can assume this was a terribly lucrative form of employment for a trusted Scottish immigrant. The job was not without its drawbacks, of course. Settler children in New Zealand during the late 19th century had an estimated 10% mortality rate and it could not be expected that all the relinquished babies in Dean's care would survive to puberty or adulthood. In 1889, a six-month-old infant in Dean's care died, and two years later, a six-week-old baby. An inquest concluded that the children at her home, the Larches, were well cared for, but that the premises were inadequate. Concerned about Dean's activities, police began watching her more closely. On the 2nd of May, 1895, after Dean arrived home with a suspiciously heavy hatbox, but without the child who had earlier been seen in her care, police searched her garden and unearthed the bodies of babies Dorothy Carter and Eva Hornsby, as well as the skeleton of an unidentified four-year-old boy. Was Minnie Dean dealing with regular bad luck? Had she made an effort to hide the bodies of children who had died of natural reasons to avoid bad press? Was she negligent or murderous? To find the answer, Mrs. Dean was tried at the Invercargill Supreme Court in July of 1895. The trial was sensationalized in the press with headlines proclaiming her guilt before the trial had even begun. It didn't help that cases of criminal baby farmers in the UK and Australia had been headlining newspapers for the last few years. Arthur Hume, the commissioner of police in 1893, said, I have no hesitation in saying that the evil of baby farming exists in this colony to a large extent, he claimed 20 baby farms existed in the capital city alone. In an attempt to stamp out this fearful slaughter of the innocents, the state regulated the system of paid child care. Under the Infant Life Protection Act, passed in 1893, all homes that received payment to care for infants under the age of two for more than three consecutive days had to be licensed as foster homes and were subject to police inspection. These regulations and inspections did not cool the fervor of Minnie Dean's prosecutors, however, who argued that she had murdered the babies in her care. The defense claimed that the babies had died of natural causes and that Minnie Dean had simply buried them. Said her lawyer, sober, home-loving folk from end to end of the country shuddered, when the grim and ghastly story of Minnie Dean's infamy was narrated by the prosecution. Imagine a being with the name and appearance of a woman, boldly using a public railway train for the destruction of her helpless victims, sitting serene and unperturbed in a carriage, with one tiny corpse in a tin box at her feet, and another enshrouded in a shawl and secured by traveling straps, in the luggage rack at her head. Of course, he argued that this was a complete fabrication. The jury ultimately found Minnie Dean guilty of murder, and she was sentenced to death by hanging. Hung, she was indeed on August 12, 1895 at the Invercargill Jail at the intersection of Spay and Levin Streets in what is now the No Leaming Car Park. She was the only woman ever to have been executed in New Zealand, which currently does not condone the death penalty. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you'd like to hear these episodes ad-free, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash historyobscura for ad-free episodes every week. Good night! mm mm-hmm.